This is Fields of the Future, an interview series by Bard Graduate Center. This season highlights the work of scholars, artists, and educators working with indigenous textiles and textile history of the southwestern United States and Mexico. In this episode, Jesse Merdain Young speaks with Porfirio Gutierrez about the connections between textile art and homeland, his relationship with natural dye and color, and the ancestral knowledge at the foundation of his practice. Hi, my name is Jesse Mordeen Young, a recent graduate from the Bard Graduate Center. I am a Brooklyn-based textile scholar, educator, and weaver. I'm calling in from the traditional homelands of the Lenape, Merrick, Canarsie, Matanecoc, and Rockaway Nations. I'm thrilled to be speaking to Porfirio Gutierrez, who is a Zapotec textile artist and natural dyer based in Ventura, California. He was born and raised in the Zapotec textile community of Teotitlan del Valle in Oaxaca, Mexico, which has an incredibly rich textile tradition. His art practice is rooted in his ancestors' knowledge and deep respect for nature, and his work is inspired by his experience on both sides of the imposed border. He is also an esteemed lecturer and has shared his art practice and ancestors' story at many institutions and cultural organizations around the world. Hi, Porfirio. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much, Jessica, for the invitation. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share with your audience. We're lucky to have you. To start off, can you please share your art practice with me and talk a little bit about the mission of your studio? If you don't mind, if I just share a little bit about where I come from. So I come from a family of musicians. I come from also a family of practitioners and teachers of the ceremony of feather dance. And because I was... Um, born within this family and within this community, I also received the inheritance of the art of weaving. The mission of my studio and my art practice has always been to preserve the memories and the uh, traditional knowledge of the ancestors, to uplift and for the world to hear the voice of the indigenous people and to honor them through the work. And in terms of how you've seen family and your ancestors' histories transcend into your own practice over the years. Can you talk a little bit more about how that exists today? I think the most visual or the most evident way how this worldview, the ancestral worldview, and the cultural value that I talk about so much is seen in my work, it is because it carries these practices, the ancestral knowledge, specifically the natural diet. And beyond that, it carries this traditional knowledge of the spiritual aspect and the relationship that I have with nature and this worldview of Mother Earth, which is something that I have learned from my parents and that has been passed down from our civilization. And as one of the youngest people of the Zapotec civilization, as a practitioner of this art form, it is my wish that the people could see this value within my art practice. I feel very fortunate to have been able to visit your homelands and your hometown in the Valle de Teotitlan. And it was both really inspiring and informative. I learned so much about the history of color and the importance of preserving color. I'd love to hear more how you incorporate color into your art 
and what that process is a little bit like in terms of maintaining a relationship with color on a daily basis. For referencing with color, it has obviously been um, in such of an important aspect in humanity's life for some cultures or for more the Western worldview of color. We have so much reference or symbolism of wealth and power. When we think about the uh, cultural context, especially ancient Mexico, we start looking at the spiritual connection with color. But for me, it is not only about the color, but instead where the color comes from. And all the colors that you see on my weavies come from a living source. These are the uh, understandings that I've learned since really young. And that communicates not only the aesthetic and the colors of my pieces, but also uh, the spiritual understanding through them. That's really beautiful. As someone who also has an intimate relationship with color and that I have my own natural dye practice, I do understand the importance to experience the dye process. But someone like you who educates others on the importance of color within your community, within your ancestry. How do you teach others to appreciate color? Wow, that is a great question. I don't know if I've ever put an effort to appreciate color. I don't know if that's really uh, my effort. I think my effort has been for people to understand where the colors come from and how that relates to the biodiversity and how within that, what visually seen as color what's the relation to the spiritual aspect and the cultural value. And of course, I'm talking about natural dyes here. Can you speak about the permeability of the border and how that has influenced the exchange of color and also how that influences your experience with color as you've now had life on both sides of the California-Mexico border? I think when it comes to color, for me, it only comes to mind the uh, issue that we've had with defining people of color. And as a person of color and also immigrant in a different country, that really comes to mind. And I've never really focused on color. So that's probably why I'm not able to answer directly to your question about color, because I think color for me it is extremely sensitive. My approach, like I mentioned, it, it only comes through instead of just the color itself, and of course, the color is an important place, an important role in my work. It's more of a meditative when it comes to aesthetic of the color. But instead, it is more driven by who and what makes the color, how the color came to be. But when it comes to indigenous of the Americas or Native American, there's obviously this notion of I am in a different country. And in some is true to that. Yes, and I'm in a different country. But we often forget that I am in the same land. And in the reference towards me as an indigenous or Native American, then I'm not an immigrant in some ways. So it is within the context of the land as a whole. When I think about my latest work, a body of work that I just produced in an exhibition right now here in California, it's called Continuous Line. When I think about the plants that I use in my dyes that are indigenous to the Americas and specifically to Oaxaca, let's say, that they grow wildly here in this part of the Americas where I'm at. 
And when I think about the knowledge, how it runs through the people, and no matter where the people goes, it stays alive. And this is where this quote that I said, that our head is our house. So a really border, it becomes deplete at that point. When I'm speaking on this context, I'm never thinking about this, that I'm in a different country. Instead, I am on the land of the Shumash people who are our brothers and sisters. And in my work, it is more of a relationship and homage to the land itself. And not paying so much attention to the limitation as an immigrant or with the border. Instead, this continuous line travels through the people and their value and their knowledge. And truly, being in a different country or being on the other side of the border, it's not relevant at that point, I think. I think what you're saying is so true, specifically as an art historian who's been learning so much about textiles in the indigenous Southwest and in Mexico for the past year and a half. We always refer to the border as permeable because the border is evidence to colonization. And so much of the history of color is a result of colonization in that the exchange of it became a part of this narrative of taking and moving and so on. I think what you're saying is so well worded because it's so true. And so I loved what you were saying about the continuous line, because as you said, from someone who's from the land, the border doesn't exist. It is an exchange that happens throughout the land because of no need for one, no need for a border. And that has nothing to do with the indigenous people. Yes. In terms of that exhibition of work, did you weave everything? And specifically, was there colors that stood out in that work? You said that they were from the local area in LA. Can you talk more about the color palette that you were using? The color palettes and so much of when you um, explore the shades that earth provides, it has such a specific vocabulary. And I'm extremely drawn to those vocabularies. In fact, my art practice since 15 years, since revitalizing and resuming my art practice, I came to really understand a specific body of language that Mother Earth provides and how the purest of it, with no additives, with no processed chemical, because if we speak of natural dye, there's also a lot of chemical could be added as additives to make the color react. In my practice, it's the purest. So creating colors, it's only by creating chemical reaction with nature. So those colors, to me, overall, it is very meditative. And this body of work, the continuous line, has some of these colors that the color itself, it is something that inspires you to meditate, the soothing of the colors, but also the very minimal designs you see on these pieces. You obviously see the origin of these uh, designs, but you also see this urban influence and modernism into the work. So the colors becomes as important as the design, or maybe more important as the design. It's important because hopefully it draws the people to meditate and the soothingness and the vocabulary 
of Mother Earth can now be tangible through these pieces. I'm actually looking at one of the works from this series, and it's just absolutely stunning. I'm looking at the one with the orange band and with the red and then the almost like a ziggurat zigzag type shape. And it is so beautiful. But I particularly love the gray one with all of the striations, the contrast of that charcoal gray with that natural creamy color. And then that black line is just really, really stunning. It's just so beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and these colors, it's exploring this body of work, continuous line. It's exploring the ancestral technique and the values, uh, but also it is a conversation and it is a uh, interaction with the contemporary art practice, as well as these pieces. Some of them has embroidery work on them. So it is also this uh, intersection with other techniques that goes beyond what the community in Teotitlan has been doing for, you know, a couple hundred years now, or maybe a hundred years. So again, continues to see these influence of these two worlds. What's so interesting is that with contemporary art, there's this kind of unspoken word, or maybe it's a spoken word that simplicity can often define a piece because of it being part of the language of contemporary art. And I look at your work and it is simple and it's contemporary, like you're saying, but it's also so complex because of its meaning, its deep meaning that comes with it. The meaning of the color, the meaning of the pattern, it's all connected to not only yourself, but a larger history, a larger community to your ancestors. So I think it's so beautiful that there are these various layers. It's so much more complex than what you initially think when you look at it. So it's an incredible body of work. Thank you. And in addition to your art practice, you're an educator and a community creator. (laughs) And so I wanted to ask you if you could speak a little bit more about that. When I think of educator, I think of obviously, you know, because, uh, there is so much knowledge and wisdom that nestles within, you know, my culture as a Zapotec, my art practice. And so much of it is also driven by this notion of the ancestor's voice could be heard. But also, um, I think of my parents who never had the opportunity to go to school. I'm speaking Western school. So... This indigenous community that has tremendous knowledge and wisdom and inherit the science, the arts, that they don't have the opportunity to be able to express all that to the world. And again, I'm thinking directly to my parents. They could barely speak Spanish. So I only communicate with them through my native language, which is Zapotec. So I think those are some of the things that drives me and of, of being an educator, but also so much information and this knowledge that I just mentioned has been spoken by someone else and he's been told by someone else and has been shared by someone else. So the world it never really hears the concerns and the voice of the indigenous people. And those are some of the things that has driven me and to be able to educate 
and not just educate because I don't really consider me educator other than teacher because I teach natural dye and weaving. I do some workshops when my schedule permits it. But those are the things I just think that I also not only owe it for all this responsibility to my ancestors, but also to my kids who are the next generation of the Zapotec nation. Do your kids have any interest in weaving or dyeing? You know, my kids are definitely involved. I have a 19-year-old who is a college, a great writer. I have another, Noah, who's nine years old. My oldest son, his name is David. And Noah is definitely an artist. And he's definitely someone that I can really see being able to continue my art form. But I never really put the responsibility of my kids that they need to be weavers and dyers. Because often we expect or we think, at least for my personal experience, that I am a weaver because I was born in this tradition and learning through my parents. But the minute I had option, I left. And when you're speaking of craft within a cultural tradition, in many ways it becomes a work. And it is only alive through me because I discover my calling. My mother says that the greater being bless your hands with the particular mission and work that you do. So it's not just me that I'm doing the work that I'm doing. It is a blessing that I receive from the greater being. And she refers to that because she is a healer herself. And she says that uh, as a person does not heal, but instead it is the greater being that heals through her, specifically through her hands and the knowledge of a traditional medicine. So I parallel that with my art practice or me as an artist. I ran away from my culture when I was 18 years old. The minute that the world gave me an opportunity, off I went. And only through these uh, many years of silence, I discovered that I had a passion for weaving and that I discovered my calling. And for that reason, I exist as an artist. And the minute that you're going to give options to tradition craft it would preserve through very few people that truly found their calling otherwise it just becomes a business it becomes something very empty and because it could just really be exchanged by monetary all the time and when i think about my kids we're making sure that they are carrying these cultural values and how they're going to express the cultural value, it is really up to them. And hopefully they'll discover the blessing that they will receive or they've already received when they were born through the greater being. And uh, maybe this tradition can stay alive through the writings of my son or maybe my younger son become, I don't know, maybe a weaver like me or maybe a dyer or a painter, a filmmaker. I don't know, but I think for me, it's most important is for them to carry the value. I think the fact that you're so open to that freedom of expression, taking on different forms and allowing them to explore that, I think is really important. I'm really interested in how you said that you took some time away from it and then you returned to it. And that's because it was meant for you. And I think that it's really wonderful that you found something that you feel so passionate about that you can pursue fully. I woke up this morning and I just had one of those moments as someone who's a weaver where we live in this digital age 
and people expect content all the time or they expect for you to be fast and keep going. And weaving is one of the slowest things. It's so labor intensive. And most people don't understand how much time, patience and attention it takes to be a weaver and to be a dyer. <laughs> Both are, are very commanding forms of making. And I guess I was thinking a lot about it because we also live in this time of industrialization and fast fashion. And when I went to Oaxaca and visited Teotitlan, it seems that there was a very strong community of weavers still practicing their craft. But at the same time, from the stories I heard or the narratives people told me, there's this challenge because people don't always appreciate the time and energy it takes to make something and they expect it to be something that they can get for less money. They think that they can buy it at a lesser cost, but really it's important for others to recognize the value behind the handmade and the value behind the knowledge and the skill and the ancestral skill set. So I'm just kind of wondering how does someone who's not from your hometown or from the area and someone who's not a weaver, how do they better understand the efforts it takes to make a beautiful textile or how can they support individuals who are weavers in a way that is respectful to their practice and to their craft? Great question. And definitely those are some of the uh, really important topics, I think, to understand and value handmade. And handmade is one thing, a whole different thing if we're talking about your work closely or your art practice is deeply embedded to nature. You could look around you and start to understand and see climate change and the environmental crisis we are facing today. I think value could come from being awareness of those things and start to really value, again, not only handmade, because handmade could still be done with chemicals that still harming nature, right? That's probably, I think, the most obvious that anybody anywhere in the world and in any background that you start to see this urgency that we've seen with the environment and the climate change. And how would you support somebody that maybe, you know, it works in these manners and respectful to nature? If the consumers would only take a moment to learn what people do and not what they say they do, then you will be better educated and you will know at that point whether it's worth for you to support them. I say this because this happens all over the world where the economic opportunity is driven by tourism. So you get to these places where it is driven by a market, it is driven by a tourism. So much of it is honoring those buyers that are looking for something in cheap, or maybe the notion of preservation is, is different. But when you take your time to learn what people do, you start to peel those layers and you start to find authenticity within the mess. And depending, whatever you're looking for, and I'm speaking 
maybe someone that in our practice that continue carries the uh, respect and works in harmony with nature and carries that value. Only if you could take the time to learn what people do and not what they say they do. I think that would help a lot. I think that's great advice. I think that's hard to put into practice for many, but I think you're right there in terms of what we need to do to value other people's work and to be more conscious of how we consume cloth overall. I can't help but um, see the beautiful red skeins of churro wool behind you. And I also see some cactus hanging from the rafts. So I'm wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about the display in your studio in Ventura. The yarn, it is indeed a display to be able to see these traditional knowledge within this chemistry that relates to cochineal insect. And the cochineal insect leaves, you see, are actually where I'm farming the insects, of course, for the color red. This is cochineal insect. The little bit that it's seen on this screen here, you're able to see this labor intensive, right? This slowness. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really do hope that at some point in the future, I can come see your studio in Ventura and see what you're working on. It's just such a privilege to have you on the second season of the Fields of the Future podcast. And I've really just enjoyed speaking with you about your work. Well, thank you, Jessica. And thank you, uh, everybody who makes this uh, podcast possible. I appreciate all of you for having me and and thank you for uh, the opportunity. Fields of the Future is brought to you by Bard Graduate Center, located in New York City, the traditional homelands of the Lenape, Merrick, Canarsie, Matinecock, and Rockaway Nations. Despite systemic erasures, these lands persist as intertribal trade lands under the stewardship of many nations and over 115,000 intertribal Native American First Nations and Indigenous peoples who currently call New York City home. We acknowledge that many cities and institutions in the Americas were founded on the exclusions and erasures of Indigenous peoples. In addition, we would like to acknowledge those whose ancestors did not arrive on these lands of their own free will, and whose tremendous cultural, economic, and technological contributions continue to provide the foundation for our lives. Our producers are Juliana Fagua Arias and Jessica Merdane Young. Our direction by Jocelyn Lau. Composition and sound editing by Palmer Heffron. With thanks to Laura Minsky, Emily Riley, Amy Estes, Peter Miller, Nadia Rivers, Helen Tang, Maggie Walters, and Susan Weber. Special thanks to Hadley Jensen, whose online exhibition, Shaped by the Loom, Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest, was the inspiration for this season. (laughs) 